Cormac, I passed. You passed. I didn't even see the obituary. Passed my final inspections today. Oh my goodness. Final inspections for this phase, but... for Yeah, for phase 0. 0.1. I'm sorry. It's, I always look for the... Like, yes, but it's only... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what a project manager. I could bring up your recent submittal woes. Hey, so, so uh, you passed. We passed, yeah. I'm changing the subject. I was just kind of thinking through the process up here, and I live in an unincorporated part of the county. And so the uh, building department is in the county records area, okay. building and planning, and pull permits. And I thought it would be fun to kind of go through the process of what this first taste of doing something like this in Oregon is like. It just seems very different. And it's mm -hmm. way different than commercial projects or public projects for obvious reasons. We just added a bathroom to the house. But just living in a more rural area and that side of things. Mm -hmm. So we go to the county and we take out our three different permits we need. So as a homeowner, you can pull your own permits. Or if you hire a contractor, they have to pull the permits. So we did this project, and so we pulled the permits. And so the, you're CMing, you're GCing, not GCing. You could you could do that, but I, th I think you're mainly doing the work. So yeah, we definitely had okay. some help along the way because there's people who do big things better than I do in different trades. So definitely brought that in. But the whole idea of you know you go in for a permit without any drawings at all. And you say, we're going to add a bathroom to the house in the existing footprint, not an addition, anything like that. And you get three different permits for that. You get a plumbing permit, you get an electrical permit, and you get a mechanical permit. Nobody asks at all what this thing is going to look like. There's really? no talk of that at all. Did you do any framing of any kind? Yeah, we did. And So you don't have to do like... Nope, nothing. Nothing at all. And yeah. so it's, I'm sure the inspectors are just like, they see whatever they see when they go there and they pay attention to whatever they pay attention to and they pass or fail you based on what they see in the moment. And they don't care about knowing what they're going to see before they go there. So they just kind of mm. take it in as it hits them. There's like all these things that you could fictitiously kind of make up ahead of time. Oh, they're going to look at this and they're not going to like this and they're not going to like that. And it's like when they actually come... They're just looking at what they look at, and they I think they would prefer not to talk to you at all. And <laughs> that's how it seemed to me. And not only that, but it's like you don't know what they're going to notice. You don't know what they're going to look at or call you out for or anything. And so, of course, we want to do it right, and we want to do it well, and we don't want to have any issues. And so mm -hmm. I obviously made small talk and, and had great conversations with these different inspectors. But it was still really interesting just to go through the process. So we had to get a rough inspection and a final inspection for those three okay. disciplines. And they told us that all the inspectors are cross-trained, cross-discipline. So basically you set an appointment on the day before you want them to come. And you can set it for one or all three or two of the three, whatever you want. Just show up. So Oregon Bob inspector can come out and he's looking at plumbing. Or yeah, plumbing or mechanical or electrical. Yeah. And so they're training a new guy to do just the plumbing part of it. So they didn't set it up so that they just signed off on all three. Like they explicitly said, the plumbing guy's following me in 30 minutes. And because they're training him and we want him to get a lot of experience, we want him to see a lot of things and get 
a bunch of permits under his belt, which makes sense, right? Because he's a new guy on the team and that's his specialty background. So that's how they're giving him more seat time. They show up and they do the rough inspections. What does rough inspection mean to you? This is where I think the conversation could be kind of interesting because as an architect, thinking about the things we're not allowed to think about, means and methods, thinking about, mm. do you think somewhat about sequencing, but we're not responsible for it when it comes to like the actual construction of the project. What does that mean to you? Talking about a rough inspection? Rough inspection. Yeah. What do you think okay. the level of completion is at a rough inspection? So let's just say electrical. I'd say electrical, you know, you've got your boxes put in there, you've got your conduit run, maybe you've got your wires pulled from the box to the outlets. It's everything up to probably final connection. Okay. And what do you think it means for plumbing? My guess would be is that say, if you've got under slab, you got all of your under slab laid out so that they can inspect it before you pour a slab, you've got your drains, you've got essentially everything up until final connection. Yeah. What do you mean by laid out for the under slab? You actually have like your drains, your traps, your, all your horizontals, like everything run and all a full rough in of mm -hmm. everything before it gets covered up. And then so far as fixtures and things go, obviously those aren't in yet, right? And, yeah. I mean, to me, that would be part of your final inspection where fixtures are in and all of that other stuff. And so that you can actually test to see if like all of your water and all your water connections and all that other stuff. But, if, you know, they're still testing all of that stuff as part of a rough inspection before you close up like walls and see. I'm used to seeing several layers of a rough inspection. You've got your underslap, you've got your, your verticals, like your in-wall stuff. Making sure that, you know, anything above ceiling, anything before it gets covered up, in my opinion, is a rough inspection. Okay. And so then for final category, mechanical, same thing. I didn't know I'm taking an ARE. You are. You're taking an ARE. <laughs> Welcome to building systems. Okay. So building systems, you're talking rough in or final? Yeah. Rough in still. Rough in, same thing. You got, it's everything that's run before it gets covered up. So, you know, your ductwork, your condensate lodge, any kind of piping that you would have that, you know, ultimately will be covered over by a ceiling or a wall or... So my wife and I had a difference of opinion here. I was assuming it was way less than anything you just said, because okay. if you don't do it right, you got to undo it. That's how construction right. works. And there is no checklist anywhere for what those two terms mean. And every inspector has a variance in opinion on what those things mean, it seems to me. I mean, they're all on the roughly the same page, but mm -hmm. different inspectors look for different things than their counterparts. And you'll hear different pieces of that story from different ones. She thought it meant basically what you just said, if I'm, if I'm interpreting her, her interpretation correctly. We scheduled the rough inspection and the inspector shows up it seemed he was not having a good day. Uh-oh. Yeah, exactly. He walks in, and this is our first experience with an inspector here. And he's like, I'm, I'm going to have to come back another time. He's like pointing at the, the, this piece of electrical. So we had all the under slab plumbing done, right? All the connections into the existing under slab 
pipe for a toilet, for a sink, for a shower tub combo, which was no small feat, like excavation and exploratory surgery of a slab to find where these lines are (laughs) was not fun. And then there was the wiring is close to where it needed to be, but it's like, again, I'm kind of assuming, you know, the stub outs are there for plumbing and for boxes in the ceiling for the fan and the light, but no ductwork run yet because when the inspector comes, to me, it's an opportunity to say, hey, what do you think about doing it like this so that we, I do it right the first time, okay? Right. But right. it was not like that at all. It was like, you didn't do it right. You get three fails and then you're, you get like flagged. And so it was super stressful because it was like you failed on all three disciplines the very first time because we just didn't have it all hooked up. And I thought it was weird because when I think rough inspection, like obviously you're not putting a toilet in yet because you don't have flooring in it. You're not putting a tub in yet because you don't have the drain exactly located yet. You can't put several things in because you just can't. But Stub outs were not enough. It had to be basically done for that discipline to be rough inspected. So done but not covered? Correct. Done but not covered. Sometimes I've seen that too, where it may not be fully like tied in, but or fully tied in. And again, it a lot of times it's just dependent on, and you are definitely highlighting and, and pinpointing that it depends on the jurisdiction. There's that. And I guess I'm just highlighting this from an architect's point of view and just not knowing what we don't know. And there's definitely like a person-to-person network kind of a thing when it comes to this, right? Those inspectors know all the contractors who do the work. They don't know all the homeowners, but they, the contractors know what the inspectors are looking for because they've had this experience. And so I just think it's, it's interesting because there is kind of all of this I don't know, like expectation that people just know because the people that they normally work with already know. And we don't. So there was nothing given to you as the person pulling the permit. Absolutely nothing. So they were essentially assuming that you knew exactly what when they said, hey, if you call for a rough inspection, this is the level of expectation that we have for you. You know what that means in this jurisdiction for the people who are going to look at it. I would say that, again, I've had varying experiences with any of like the residential stuff that I've done and definitely a different experience with the the commercial work, depending on where we're at and and the jurisdiction and the inspector, because it sounds like you're also somewhat at the mercy of the inspector and the inspector's good or bad day. Yeah. So let's get back to the bad day part. Inspector number one, he's like, oh, I can't sign off on this plumbing because you don't have a, and this is where he starts to use the uh, the plumbing lingo. You don't have 10 feet ahead. Okay. And I'm like, okay, so explain to me what that means. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so what he said was, you need to have all of your vent pipes and yeah. your drain pipes full of water 10 feet above the floor line. And so then I proceeded to ask him, I said, how do you do that? So this is a renovation. This is an existing house. This is not a greenfield construction site. There is no way to stop the stuff from flowing out of the sewer pipe. There's no mechanism. There's no like guillotine that I could, you know, like little gate that I could drop like I can on my RV to stop the stuff from flowing out of it, right? 
that doesn't exist in the house, right? There are clean outs, but there are not like stoppers that you can put in. I said, how do you do that? He's like, yeah, that's going to be tricky. And he seriously didn't say anything after that. <laughs> well, that's going to be tricky. And I said, so do you, how do you fill the pipes? Okay, so again, like if you expect to see the pipes all done up, right? So you've got all these inch and a half ABS vent lines right. and you've you got some two inch vent lines and then you've got some three and four inch outlet pipes and all this stuff. I said, you know, you expect to see all that airtight so that it can hold water, right? 10 feet above the floor line. Yeah. No, first of all, these pipes are opaque, right? Like you can't actually see how much water right. is in them yeah. if there was water in them anyway. And I said, how do you fill those up? I said, like, what do you do? Do you go up on the roof and you fill it with a hose from the vent popping out the roof? He goes, yeah, that's usually what they do. And I'm like, huh. But so okay, what? So like, you just want to fill all your pipes with water, assuming you could stop it, okay? You want to fill all your pipes with water until what? Until it overflows out of the vent pipe on the roof? And and like, again, existing house. What if, now I don't want leaks in my vent pipes. What if there is one? What if there is one where I can't get to it? Then what? But, but like when he's saying you're 10 feet ahead on a sealed system, I mean, what they're doing is they're testing the pressure in the system. Make sure that all of the you know connections and everything else are meeting. But seriously, going up on the roof and pouring a hose down the vent drain, applying the amount of pressure that it well, needs. Well, he's to test. assuming you can stop it like somewhere, right? So that it would just hold that water and it would sit there for a while until you pull the stopper and then it all drains out, just to make sure it's not leaking anywhere. The other way to do this is with a an air pressure test. But from what right. I did a little looking things up and it looks to me like you're not allowed to air pressure test ABS. You can air pressure test metal pipe, galvanized pipe, mm -hmm. iron pipe, but not you're not supposed to air pressure test ABS. And even if I was a little unclear, but it was a very low amount of pressure too. It was like five pounds. So anyway, long story short, it's like, how are you going to do that? Yeah, that's going to be tricky. Well, okay, so there's two things you got to solve for. You got to plug it up and you got to fill it. And I can figure out the filling part, but the plugging up part, yep, that's going to be tricky. And it's like, see you next time. That was it. And I was just like, whoa, that was a bad first experience with an inspector. And what if he comes back the next time? <laughs> what was my next thought? Anyway, yeah, I'll take questions at this time. I was going to say, you, you passed. So obviously, what did you do? Yeah, so just I buttoned all of the systems up and finalized them. And it's interesting because when they come back, the next time the guy came back, it was a different guy for all three disciplines. So it was three other guys who came in for each system, even though we had scheduled them all on the same day. And even though we were told mm -hmm. that they would be cross-disciplinary, they were doing this training thing with this new guy. So they didn't want to want to take his job away from him. So basically got to talk and meet these three other guys and they were all great guys, really nice, really low key and very helpful in contrast to the first guy. Who so came in. they explained to you, you know, what it means for 10 feet ahead and all that other. They came in, I had basically buttoned everything up and it was like, I specifically signed up for a mechanical and an electrical inspection, but not a plumbing inspection. So that when the inspector came, my thinking was, I'm going to pick his brain about the plumbing because he's not going to be giving me a, an X mark for something I can't solve on the plumbing. All I'm going to do is talk right, to him about right. it. 
So that was the plan. And uh, the guy came in and, and he was like, I don't really think that's doable on a house renovation project with you as a homeowner. So I'm going to, I would give you a pass on that. And I'm like, well, how can I guarantee that you'll be the guy who will come? And he's like, yeah, you can't do that. <laughs> and I was, oh, no, it's like you're playing roulette with the guy who will pass you. Long story short, it was interesting that when the plumbing guy came, he didn't ask about that at all. He looked at other stuff. Was it the same guy? No, it was a different guy. So Different I mean, that's from the kind other of, guy from the other guy? Yes. So this is so guy three, guy number three. It was guy number three or four, like depending on the order, right? So, yes. So everybody did have comments, but they were like, you can overcome this by doing this, you know, very helpfully. It was like I had run three-inch exhaust tubing for my exhaust fan, and he said, new code is it's got to be smooth and four-inch, or it can Mm. be flex five-inch. So at least he told me like exactly what it needs to be based on the code. And I had to rip out the ductwork. So this is like, I I was full on contractor, right? It was like, it didn't pass inspection. I had to rip it out and do it again. Got all that done. I had sealed it up with duct tape, you know, 3M, the good stuff. Mm -hmm. Not acceptable. You have to actually use like foil tape. You had to take all the tape off and do that again. (laughs) But luckily... Instead of him just taking off marks, he said, just text me a picture and I'll sign off on it. That was super cool. (laughs) See, now, (laughs) when you're talking about duct tape for a duct, I automatically think of the foil tape, not duct tape. Well, when you're in that aisle at Home Depot, (laughs) guess what is right next to the ducts? It is the, duct tape. the 3M duct the tape. The plastic. Yeah. yeah. They have both of them there. But it's like, which one are you going to buy? The $25 roll or the $6 roll? Yeah. You bought the $31 roll. I probably did. Because you bought yep. the $6 roll and the $25 roll. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that, that was rough inspections. And it was rough. Yeah. It, these were seriously rough inspections. I learned a lot. And it just makes me think about the education of an architect. It makes me think about... What we don't know about how things are actually built, even though I feel mm. like I have a lot of building experience, I don't have a lot of all of the kinds of building experience. I definitely don't have a lot of these kinds of systems, installation and design experience, whereas I I do have a, a lot more framing experience, for example, and things like that. So that's interesting, though, because I truly feel that there's a knowledge difference between Somebody who spends most of their career as a residential architect and, Mm -hmm. you know, somebody who spends most of their career as a commercial architect, because Mm -hmm. there are going to be some things that residential architects will know that commercial won't know because they're hands on a lot of times with the contractor talking through a lot of these smaller issues. Sure. We don't spend a lot of time sitting there with the mechanical contractors or the plumbing contractors really talking through a lot of that stuff because, you know, structural, yeah, maybe your facades, your window guy and and all this other stuff. Yeah. But because of larger scale, a lot of times we don't really spend a lot of time. Now I've spent some time with a lot of like the adaptive reuse, learning a lot of this, but probably not as much as if I was just a commercial architect. 
versus a residential architect who will learn a lot more about the mechanicals. Now, a lot of times they're the ones designing it. You know, a lot of times they don't have engineers. They, they are the engineer for a lot of yeah, that stuff. Yeah, exactly. So they have to learn I, all of that. I have that sense too. And I don't know how true this comment will be. My sense is that it's more true than not. But it's it's the idea that those architects are doing their own CA. If Again, I don't know for sure. I'm sure a lot of architects don't get hired to do CA fade on their projects. Mm-hmm. But they do get out there and they see the installations and they're doing project after project. Whereas like in the public work realm that I come from, you have a CA person who goes to a weekly OAC, owner architect contractor mm-hmm. meeting and goes through all the issues and walks the site. And that is one person of a very large team. And that very large yeah. team never does that except for maybe twice during the whole thing. So when you don't get out there and get that site visit experience and you don't see it at all those different phases, the primary steel going up, and then you start to see some of the systems going, you see the wall framing, then you start to see the electrical, then you don't see all those. You just don't know this mm-hmm. stuff, right? And so- right. Again, you're hiring a consultant to do your electrical engineering. You're hiring a consultant to do your plumbing. You're hiring a consultant to right, do your HVAC, right. your structural, all those things where, like you said, when you're doing residential, a lot of times you're probably doing most of that just as the architect. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so we got to the point where we called for the final inspections. And, you know, again, you kind of just hope that the cool guys show up when, <laughs> when you do this. And they did. And so I'm happy to report past final inspections. And, you know, they want to see it once it's all buttoned up. So kind of just demystifying the inspection process. They want to see it once during the rough to make sure all the stuff is put in correctly and that it's airtight and that Mm -hmm. the wiring's done right and the switches are in and the outlets are in and all of those things. And then final is drywall's up, floor's in, fixtures are in place. You can turn them all on. The light switch cover plates are on to that level. So then you can actually get signed off. So it is like done. So I think the main thing there is like making sure you didn't add anything else or take anything away or anything like that, that you, you know, trying to pull a fast one on them. They just want to make sure that it, it was a completed project exactly as intended. Okay. Phase point zero one is done. Exactly. And that is, this is for your bathroom. Was a, yeah, it was an additional bathroom. Yep. Okay. And uh, so the next next step, sorry, next adventure. I had a I had an electrician come today for a bid because we're gonna add like multiple circuits to to uh, our downstairs mm-hmm. area. So that okay. would be the next phase, and like a sixty amp panel that's extended from the main panel. So you're talking about some pretty heavy duty wire running it like sixty feet through soffits, and I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, so where do you feel like your limitations are in doing a lot of this stuff? Time is the biggest limitation. (laughs) I know that's not the question you were really asking, but that is the biggest answer is time. Yeah, I understand the situation, so I get it. Because, I mean, there are so many things, like I'm looking at, obviously, doing some renovation or just finishing out the basement. Everything about the upstairs are pretty well done enough. I mean... There are things in the future that I'll probably change. Yeah, make it a little bit more of my own, but nothing urgent. I mean, all of that is you know, perfectly serviceable. Everything looks nice. It was a move-in ready home, even though it was a 1941 thing. 
but you know the basement's unfinished now mm-hmm. good thing mm-hmm. is the basement's actually got a decent size floor to underside of structure so I can, you know, comfortably fit it out and have a decent downstairs. Plus, it, I kind of have like a couple of different realms of, of things. Like some say when you come out to old Detroit for a visit, got a place to put you. But I play in my head, what can I do versus what am I going to have to have somebody else do? And yeah. of the things that I think I'm going to need to have somebody else do, I always ask myself this question, am I sure that I can't do that. I have always done that, the try it first thing and figure out if this is something you'll ever do again. So there are things I won't do again. And I think I'm sure I've mentioned them before, but it's like, I will never <laughs> do a roof again. I've done a roof once. I will never, ever yeah. do a roof again. I realized that I'm not the drywall artist. I'm no Michelangelo when it comes to mud and drywall. And man, mm-hmm. there are people who are just so good at that, that I, and I want a smooth finish that I hired a guy and I got a level five finish, right? Like it's one of those things where it's like they, they're just, they have the technique because they have the 10,000 plus hours doing the thing. And so I'll do electrical, I'll do plumbing, I'll install closet doors, I'll seal and stain and I'll hang cabinets and all, all kinds of stuff. But when it comes to like really detailed drywall finish work. I won't do that. If it's, if it was wood, okay, I'll do that. And I think the other question you kind of have to ask yourself is how many tools are you willing to buy and potentially never use again? I have a lot of those (laughs) for sure, because there are a lot of specialty tools that just make things go way better when they're used correctly. And knowing even what those tools are is part of it, or being able to repurpose some tool that you have to almost be as good as the real thing is another way. It's another thing to take into account. It's just like, do you have the time? How cheap are you? If you are super (laughs) cheap, then you are going to do it yourself and you can rent certain tools and things like that. And there is YouTube and you can learn how to do stuff. And if you like to do things with your hands, I think that you should do it, right? Because you're going to learn more than just getting it done. You're going to learn through the process. And that is going to make you a better architect in the future because the next time you draw something, you're going to think about it differently. Oh, it differently. absolutely. So it's a huge piece of it. And I encourage that. I think the farther we get away from actually the hands-on part, the worse off we are as a profession. And yeah. I know that there's yeah. this huge aversion to risk and there's legal and there's all these things. But like, if if you can do it yourself in your own place and you're not learning that stuff on the job, I think, yeah, like it's, it is going to make you a more valuable architect as well. So- those are kinds of the main questions I would ask myself is how cheap am I? How much time do I have? How much money do I have? How many tools am I willing to buy? How much time am I willing to spend learning how to do this? And what if I have to tear it out and do it again? It's like, those are kind of the main questions I would ask. I love that you said all of that stuff because we often look at, or at least I look at the knowledge base of architects of yesteryear versus the knowledge base of the architects of today. In It is not an apples to apples comparison for the simple fact that we have such differing technologies in the way that things are built in the performance standards of the products that we select and put on buildings and just so many different things that we can talk about. But the one thing that I always look at, and I remember my first job, one of the things that I had to do was, and yes, this is how old I am, is had to run some blue lines, Mm -hmm. actual honest to goodness blue lines of old projects 
because they wanted to archive a lot of stuff. Unventilated room. Not ventilated. You come out high as a kite or sick as a dog. You learn how to hold your breath for as long as possible. But what I'm getting at is that, you know, as I'm archiving all of these projects, I'm thinking about, wow, there's so few actual sheets created for this project. And these projects aren't any smaller than some of the commercial projects that I work on. Granted, my current project was an anomaly of the, you know several thousand sheets because it's an eight-building, brand-new university. So that's a different case all of its own. But it's still, when I compare that set to projects of yesteryear, and I look at that the biggest thing is the knowledge. The knowledge that you're talking about that you didn't have when they were asking about, do you do you know, 10 feet of, of head? And all of these other things, or all the different roughing questions that you were talking about, and what does that mean, and all of this other stuff. They knew all of that. It was back in the day when the architect was the master builder. It was back in the day when there was a level of knowledge that architects had of the construction building trades that we just don't have. And to me, it's not a catch-all because there are definitely tons and tons of architects out there. Mostly they're sole practitioners or small businesses that do smaller projects that they do all of the engineering drawings or at least a good portion of them and would do a lot of on-site work and stuff and are more of hands-on work. I love watching Steve Basek's channel on Instagram. He's kind of, right. one, of those, one of those guys. Yeah, put a link yeah. to that. And there's this, and you you said it, you hit on exactly why we don't do that anymore. And it you know came down to liability and you don't want to assume certain liabilities now that there are the trades of electrical, plumbing, mechanical engineers, structural engineers, civil engineers, and all of this other stuff. We don't want to do all of that. Not only that, but those are an enormous undertaking as well. It's oh just, yeah, absolutely. It's a literal crap ton of work. I have a set of drawings of a extraordinarily large church in Montgomery, Alabama. And that set of drawings was eight sheets of architectural. And well, those sheets were, were these, 10 feet by 20 feet. It was, they weren't that big. But I mean, the interesting thing about it was, is that it was more an exercise. Like now it's an exercise of modeling and you, know, you got to model right. all of this stuff in. And back then it was just an exercise of line weights. Anyway, whatever. But yeah, you see where I'm going. It's like that architect spent more time out on the job site than they did on the set of documents that they created because... They were going to sit there and work hand in hand with the contractor to say, okay, here created what we would love to do today is just create essentially design intent documents and let it be figured out out on the job site or through a few little bit of uh, engineering stuff. And I mean, yeah, but again, we could I'll, I want to push back on your idea of this master builder thing. I don't think we've been master builders for a uh, extremely long. And yeah, yeah. I think yeah. though that it was like those, that 13 sheet set, the only reason those got built was because they had such an amazing contractor who was willing to yeah, work with exactly. them and figure that exactly. stuff out and make it match the vision of the design intent. It and was, it's like, I remember when I started, HVAC was single line drawings, right? It, there were oh, yeah. no, it was very much, we're going to figure this out on the site. And it was like, there was an understanding of like what was necessary to run ducts and electrical and plumbing and sprinkler and all these things in the ceiling. And we needed right. enough space for that, but there wasn't any clash detection, right? Like there was none right. of that. And so, because it was like, 
No, you knew you could rely on the contractor to figure this out because they were amazing at what they're doing and they're not going to look for ways to nickel and dime the client through change orders through this adversarial construction process. And that is, that's very different today. Yeah, one of, one of my favorite things to do when we're looking for engineers is look for engineers who are design-minded, who are going to be a team teammate. I was about to say team player, but a teammate of yours. They have as much of a design mind as you do when it comes to how they can contribute to the overall aesthetic of this. It's not just, you know, hey, I'm going to just run a bunch of ductwork and call it done. They're going to say, okay, I see the vision that you're trying to create. Here's how I can help you with that. And if I come up with some problem that says, you know, hey, Evan, way that we would normally run the ductwork through here would affect this part of your design. Do we want to try to do something else that you can seal it somewhere else? Might add a little bit more run to it, or it might be mm -hmm. a little bit more difficult. Or do we want to come up with something a little bit different in the design? Yeah, I love And that. having those conversations yeah. is, to me, some of the best parts of the overall project. Yeah. Unfortunately, as you're right, we don't have that anymore. I've experienced that for sure. I have no idea if it's still like that or not. But man, you're right. Those are the best times working on a project is solving those kinds of problems together. I feel like like that is the nirvana of working on projects with extended teams. There's a quote from a structural engineer, Hanif Kava, I think is his name. And he said, the best architects create great problems to solve. And it was basically like, right. I want to work with architects who have interesting problems to solve. Not, I don't want to just work on steel buildings the rest of my life. I don't want to work on whatever's the easiest or the most efficient or the thing I can charge the most for the least. It was like, I want to work on interesting stuff. And to me, those are the kinds of moments that you're talking about is when I've had that exact experience with structural engineer. And you pose a question like, well, what if we punch a hole in the wall and we backspan the beam this far? Could we then cantilever mm -hmm. it out and do this thing? And he's like, yeah, you just see them yeah. light up and they're like, well, that's a cool idea. I haven't done that on a project before. And, and it's like, OK, now the gears are turning. This is going to be a, a cool experience. And I'll even take that one further. That guy's boss then at one point took him off the project and we're like, why'd you take him off the project? It was going so well. And he's like, yeah, he was spending too much time on your project. You're like, <laughs> yeah, but we want him back. Oh my gosh. It's <laughs> so deflating. You finally find an engineer on this that, that actually wants to do these really great design problems. He wants to figure mm -hmm. them out and then he's not allowed to by the boss. Some of my favorite projects are when I get to expose the structure. And obviously when you're exposing the structure, you know, it changes it to a completely different level of finishing that exposed structure. And when you get a chance to do that, this exactly what you just said is that the structural engineers get so excited because now they get to design. They don't they're just, so used you know, to us just covering up their stuff. Exactly. It's not going to be just this generic plates. It's like a brace frame building and they don't model in the knife plates. And then exactly. you get, they show up on site and you're like, whoa, those things are the size of a semi truck where those, and they're like, well, people just cover them up. Yeah. <laughs> so we don't model them. This was back in the day. We don't model them. And it's like, oh, I wish I would have known that those were going to be there. Yeah. Just a different side of that coin that you're talking about. Yeah. There's a huge value in that kind of collaborative experience in the hands-on side of actually building things, having to figure it out. I can't tell you how many times we went downstairs and it's like, 
how are we going to do this? Because again, we didn't have any, we had some drawings. My wife and I drew this thing up, but it was very rudimentary just so that we mm-hmm. understood what we were getting into and how the layout was going to work. But it wasn't like we hadn't figured out how the duct was going to run from the ceiling fan over to the chase. It was like right. you figured that out in real time as we went and thought we had solved it four different ways before we actually solved it. Mm-hmm. And that to me is an invaluable experience when it comes to being an architect because you're going to take that with you and you're going to apply it to projects. And this is not the kind of thing that anybody teaches an, an architect in school, an architect in no, training. No, no. None of this. These are super valuable experiences. And this is why I really advocate for architecture students to intern in construction if, oh, if yeah, you possibly yeah. can, because you're going to learn so much about actually getting architecture built. And we all know if it doesn't get built, it doesn't count. Exactly. I think every architect should do their own home renovations because then they'll actually see one, okay, if I can't understand how to put stuff together, how am I going to expect other people to do that? You know, like yours, you were talking about knowing where your limitations are, knowing what you can do, what you can't do, but also knowing what actually everything that you, you know, all of your intentions, all of your design intentions, what does that actually mean in the real practice of getting them out? I'll tell you what, them built. what just crossed my mind as you were saying that is we actually learn the value of compromise. Yeah. Because oh, yes. when you're mm-hmm. designing, like you could just not compromise, right? And you can be that designer, you could be that architect. And then mm. there's like actually having to build something. And there's a trade-off Not only in outcome, but in craftsmanship, what you're actually capable of producing. And that obviously changes over time. And it's like level of detail when it actually comes to finishing is it's difficult. Like, how do you get there? And you could watch a lot of videos and try to figure, or you can just try and try and try. And I think part of it is just like getting comfortable living with it. Because when you draw stuff, it is so perfect, right? It is like mm-hmm. Nat's ass right on the money. It's like the line work is perfect. The dimensions between the things oh, are yeah, all perfect yeah. and they're square and oh, they're yeah. level and they're, and they're all these things. And then you actually go in to do it and the materials aren't straight and the slab's not flat and the walls aren't straight. And they put a little too much mud on the drywall before. So it bulges out here and you got to bend something around it. Kind of, you got to fill the gaps with coffee. You got to do all this stuff. And it's like, you kind of learn just like the give and take of construction and architecture. And it's it's super valuable because it it sets realistic expectations when you go on a site visit and you see the labor that somebody else has done and what it took to get there and whether you just dismiss it or reject it or accept it. Just think it makes you... More, I don't know, more human. But, <laughs> but it also, in a way, it also teaches you where do you spend your time on the drawings? What mm, do, mm-hmm. what should you care about and what maybe you want to just ease up a little bit? Instead of drawing everything to the Nats S, you know, if degree, maybe you don't need to do it here because this is going to be a pretty standard installation of some partition. And then other times it's going to be, okay, I really want this to be perfect. You know, I want this to be a book matching, a wood paneling, or you want to do this or that or something. And then you really kind of like spend your time thinking about those particular details. Because I sit there and I looked like reviewing all of these, all of the documents of a huge, large complex of buildings in my current case. And you're looking at all of these details and every one of these details 
there's so many different unique things about them and all that other stuff. And you think about it, it's like, why are the, why are all of these unique, why are these similar conditions drawn uniquely? Let's spend more time kind of making things uniform and then spending more time on the, on those one-off things, making sure that those are right. You don't have to mandate every single solitary wall in there because the guy who's going to be putting them up has put up so many more walls than you've ever drawn. Yep. So why spend all of the time suffering over those when what you really want to suffer over, the stuff that you really can see and touch and feel and stuff, those are the things that you should really. And so you're talking about compromise. It's also where do you put your, like, where do you put that effort? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I agree with that because not everything is worth it. And so kind of picking the things that really need to shine and where, and I was going to say more of like intangibles, like how does this space make you feel is the kind of stuff that where architects really add value beyond just what, how did the pieces go together if they were absolutely perfect or not? Like there's a, a new Morphosis Museum in Orange County and a lot of people are like focused in on the way the sheet metal is coming together at this really odd geometry. And, and it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, but like a step back and look at it or walk through it. And those are the experiences that most people have. As an architect, yeah, we tend to zero in on the corner detail and the way that these three materials come together. And, and should we? Yeah, I guess we should. But we should also look at, you got, this is something architects are really good at, zooming in and zooming out and zooming in and zooming out, but not cherry picking the one thing to <laughs> be the critic about because you wish you had that, pro- you had done that project. I think that there's always a little bit of envy in there. But even if it's not your aesthetic, it's still a piece of architecture that kind of matters, right? It's like one of those things where it's like, how is it serving the public, serving these other purposes other than like, how did the two corners come together thing. So I don't know, right. there's, there's, we could go down another rabbit hole there, but this is yet again, but another episode of Evan does construction on his house and learns along the way. So thanks for joining me in my ongoing journey. 